Welcome to Remember What's Next. This is a podcast where we try to make sense of our world by looking to our past. We are guided on this journey by senior lecturer, researcher, and historian Rabbi Ken Spiro and Ellie Bass from the JFI. Each week we look at a current event and ask how can knowing our history help us understand what is happening now. All right, let's look back and see what's next. Welcome, welcome back, everyone. Welcome to uh, Remember What's Next. Welcome back, Rabbi Spiro. Um, Actually, before we begin, now that you're back in Israel, are you digging? Are there any excavations? I went to the dig yesterday. How was it? I have to do a slideshow one day, like for those. I totally want to see that. (laughs) I take pictures every week. Uh, Yeah, it was it was fun. I was in a a very very deep, uh, very deep pit there. You know, we're digging down, down. We've been digging the same place for months and months and months and months, and gradually get down, 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 down. It's a little little claustrophobic after a while, Uh, but we're digging in the uh, in the uh, Hellenistic period, Maccabees, like two thousand two hundred years ago. Wow! And they're hoping to get down to the Iron Age, which is uh, first temple period. I don't know if people paid attention of if the Times of Israel did stories on it. There was and it was on the city of David, they had a whole bunch of things they put out specially showing a room they discovered that was destroyed in the first temple period. And they found these. And I'm like, whoa, this is the room that I excavated. My sister and I actually, they found, it was a big thing. We found a very well-preserved first temple period room uh, with with a lot of large storage vessels and foray with the handles had seals on them, a a floret, which is the symbol for the king. Wow. Um, it was very cool. They found a beam of wood that was very badly decayed, but burnt. Big thing to find that, like solid like that. And they brought in a, an archaeologist from Italy who spent an entire day just cutting it out and removing it. It was like, a, it was really cool. Wow. Really, really cool. So, so I didn't realize what I'm digging. You don't appreciate it. But then after the fact, I'll send you some videos we took at the time. Um, yeah, after the fact, people made a big deal out of it. It's like, a, it's one of the most graphic instances of, a, of destruction. Wow. The ceiling caved in in the room and smashed everything. And this burn is a huge destruction level there and really cool stuff. So we hope to get down to another part of the Iron Age, uh, first temple period. Eventually we'll find the same thing, I hope. So uh, in the meantime, yesterday I found more pottery than I ever found in my life. I filled (laughs) up five buckets of pottery. That's a record for me. Wow. A lot of bones. Animals. (laughs) Wow. So I think we, hit a you, we have to find for everyone that's on here we have to find ken somebody who will like do a blog for him in terms of like all of his the stuff that he's finding on his archaeological digs and their like historical significance it would just be so interesting to read especially because you're going every week so um if anyone knows someone that can do that kind of thing <laughs> It would be pretty awesome city of dave would love to participate anything anything to boost uh yeah interest in that that'd be very very cool all right so um here's what we're going to talk about today uh in the podcast um there's been something going on in the u.s um i am connected to somebody who has been writing about it talking about it you know screaming about it really trying to get people to pay attention to it and it is um, a movement that is being propagated by uh, JVP, like Jewish Voice for Peace, and different progressive um, anti-Israel uh, uh, organizations. And it's called Deadly Exchange. And this is the idea that uh, like local legislatures in the US are passing resolutions saying 
they do not want their police force working with the Israeli army who is training their police officers to be violent and racist. And um, it has passed in Durham, North Carolina. It is about to pass in Seattle. It is um, being proposed in Washington, DC and um, about six other places that we've heard about. It was actually, um, it did not pass in the California legislature, which is really fascinating. They called it way too toxic to even touch. And that was in California. So <laughs> you can only imagine um, uh, how wild that is. So I wanted to, I, I basically reached out to Ken and said, can we talk about the history of um, Ju Judaism and war, Judaism and our armies? What are the what's the history? What's the halacha? All the way up to bringing that to the IDF because this is is a smear campaign that's going on, saying that the Israeli Defense Force is racist, violent, and training other people to do that, and therefore whatever racist and violent actions happen in these cities is Israel's fault, ergo the fault of the Jews. So can we break this down and try to start at the beginning? <laughs> Yeah, what do you absolutely. think? I mean, I, I'm like kind of shocked. I was aware of that, but you sent me some things to read and I was kind of blown away by the insanity of it all. It's like intersection, intersectional insanity on a level I don't think I've ever seen before. Yeah. You know, the, the true part of it is that police forces train with Israel because Israel, we live in the front lines of terrorism. That's right. And, 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 uh, and urban warfare to Israel has, you know, unlike a lot of armies, even the U.S. Army doesn't have to deal. The vast majority of soldiers in the U.S. Army don't see combat in Israel. It's unfortunately the, the front, the borders of the country, the front line. So it's a very different reality. And Israel okay. has a lot of, a lot of experience with dealing with terrorism. Israel is very proactively involved in this constant threats daily to Israel's security. Um, but Israeli army also has an idea of purity of arms. It's a very big concept. Having done the idea, if I know this, right. there is no military. I don't want to go into a whole talk on this one because I want to go back, but there is no army in the world that behaves with greater restraint than Israel fact. It's not debatable. Right. You know, like the Gaza wars, which are completely asymmetrical warfare. It's sort of like a six-year-old attacking the world champion MMA guy and threatening him. You know, the right. MMA guy could literally end the six-year-old in 10 seconds if you wanted to. I mean, if Israel right. wanted to end Gaza, which any country, any normal country would have done, by the way, by now. Right. If the, if the Mexicans had fired 1,000 missiles into Texas, first of all, forget America, Texas would have invaded. So we're not even going to talk about the insanity of the whole notion. But it's true, a lot of police forces do train with Israel because Israel got a lot of practical experience with counterterrorism. fact, everything That's else right. is complete, you know, nonsense and drivel. Right. But again, it fits into the narrative of, you know, Israel being a colonialist occupying state of white people who are oppressing indigenous brown people. And I can't right. even begin to, we're never going to get out of that topic. But I think it's great to, to backtrack and focus. First of all, I, I want to say, and I always say when this topic comes up about Jews and war, mm -hmm. that the only reason why anyone on the political left or anywhere is even bringing up the topic is because of how Jewish values have seeped into hum the collective consciousness of humanity. Mm. The whole notion of peace, the whole notion of mercy in warfare, the whole notion of non-combatants in warfare 
comes completely and 100% from Judaism. So open that up. Can you say more about that? What, what do you mean when you say that? Where, does it, where is it in Judaism or Torah? And how has that become part of the Western collective consciousness? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, to, not to toot my own horn, but the first book I wrote, which was my master thesis, is World Perfect on the impact of you know, Jewish values on morality. And one of the concepts we talk about is war and peace. And I, I to say it all, I mean, it's not an in-depth study of it, but I think it's a great overview of the fact that the entire world, the ancient world, and much of the world throughout human history has been obsessed with warfare and, and, the, and, and, and merciless, brutal warfare for the sake of conquest, destruction, and looting and pillaging. Right. Uh, you know, in the ancient world, there's no idea it's sparing non-combatants. The only people spared Go read the history of Rome and warfare. The only people spared are people who had value. You didn't spare them because they were non-combatants. You spared them right. because I could rape this woman. I could sell this kid as a slave. I could rape this woman and then sell her as a slave. I could sell this guy as a slave. I can spare them and watch them be ripped to part by animals in a coliseum. That's not, right. It's not just Rome, by the way. Every culture does this. You know, and it's not in, in Native Americans and, you know, the same thing, you know, they take slaves, they fight wars, the only people they spared are people they, you know, kidnap some women after we kill the warriors kind of thing. It's a, it's ubiquitous phenomenon in the world. Right, Judaism, like the uh, only mode of conflict resolution was cage fight. Like that's the right. only way, like if we're, we're in a fight, this is what we do. You fight to the death, whoever wins, wins the argument and uh, end of story. Uh, yeah, and once you get to empires, no matter what empires they are, whether it's the Romans, the Greeks, or the Zulu, the, you know, you conquered what you could conquer. The only reason you didn't conquer someone was because you couldn't conquer them. Like, the Romans didn't. You know, I always said if America behaved like Rome, they were, all of South and Central, all of South and Central America and Canada would be part of the U.S. empire within a week. Right. I mean, nothing personal because you're Canadian, but you know, all eight Canadian soldiers are amazing. <laughs> but the U.S. could take out Canada. In, we, in 12 we hours. We have canoes. We're good. <laughs> you know, so, you know, so not to conquer. When conquest was natural, not to conquer was a sign of weakness. So this whole notion of living at peace, you know, Judaism is a peace-obsessed religion. So basic is peace to Judaism. It's how you greet your fellow human being. It's the one word in Hebrew that everyone knows. It's shalom. And, and, and it's, it's always been an ideal in Judaism. Judaism is very realistic, by the way. You know, you hear people saying, you know, the Jewish God is the God of war and vengeance. The Christian God is the God of love. Well, first of all, it's really the same God. Okay, they just kind of morphed into different parts in Christianity. But Judaism and, and God's view of reality is, is, is very practical and very realistic. There's no idea, you know, I think it's Hitler who was... I don't remember. He said that the only thing that Christianity, Hitler was very anti-Christian, by the way, he was a pagan, but he said the only thing that Christianity adds to, to Judaism is turn the other cheek and then Christians never follow it anyway. Right. You know, it's not, it's, it's an unrealistic idea when you're being right. attacked, you defend yourself. Judaism has a very realistic attitude. Peace has always been the ideal. You know, Maimonides says when he's talking about the messianic era, which he says the sages and prophets not long for the messianic era in order to rule the world or subdue the nations, but to be free to pursue Torah and, and, and wisdom. At that time, there'll be no hunger and no war, no jealousy and no strife. The entire world will be entirely occupied to acquire the knowledge of God, as it says. I'm just directly quoting in English what Maimonides says about peace. And he's not mm -hmm. a, it's not his you know, original thought here. Judaism brought into the world the idea that there are situations that you have to fight. We're not passive. When evil confronts you, whether it's on an individual level or on a collective level, you defend yourself. And if you don't wipe out evil, evil will wipe you out. But that's only a, a, a necessary evil is the term I would use. 
Right, and there's a very tight tight definition of what we even consider evil and how we would identify that. It's not a broad term. And it's and, and it's interesting. I highly recommend people get, if you can't do it in Hebrew, read it in English, go to Maimonides. I'm going back to him again because he's such a beautifully clear codifier of Jewish law. Go to uh, Sefer Shoftim and his Mishnah Torah, his 14 volume work, the last thing in the amazing, brilliant genius codification of the entire oral law is uh, the laws of judges. And the last part of that is the laws of kings and their wars. And look at like chapter five, chapter six, chapter seven, he goes through, because in Judaism, there's no general statements that don't come with halachic ramifications. And it's clearly broken down in Judaism, just as there are laws of defending yourself. If you see someone coming against you, you can, you can neutralize that person, even kill them. If you see one person with a knife chasing another person, you can take that person out to save that person's life. There are situations where you can do that in, but it's clearly laid out. And even war and Jewish law is clearly laid out and divided into talking about king's prerogatives, that there's two kinds of warfare. There's what's called milchemet mitzvah, a, 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 a war that is a mitzvah, which is commanded that you partake in. And then there's what's called milchemet reshut. There is like an optional war, you know, like a you can a, a king is allowed to in Jewish law if he wants to, like if he wants to if he needs to want to expand territory, he's allowed to embark on a military campaign, but in that case, uh, he has to ask permission from the Sanhedrin, like like the president has to ask the Congress right. for permission to do that, but that is a very rare circumstance in Judaism. You don't certainly don't have it in modern warfare. There's no instance in the state of Israel ever doing any such thing. Every war that the modern state of Israel has fought has been a war for defense. That territory has been gained in those wars, like 1967, as a byproduct of a country attacking us or countries attacking us to destroy us and us winning the war. It happens to be a unique facet of how the world treats Israel, that Israel is the only country in the world that fights wars for its defense, wins the wars, and then is treated as if it's the aggressor and lost the war. It has to give back territory and sue for peace from the people it defeated. It's a unique, like Orwellian way of looking at it version of reality so his historically if we look at that like other than the biblical account uh in joshua of taking uh the land of canaan and and you know basically making it the land of israel are there any other examples of israel being an expansionist army during the reign of king david he subdued all the military threats around him and made those surrounding states. He didn't expand the borders of Israel right. per se, but he made the surrounding states vassal states that, that had to you know, basically make treaties and, and pay like probably pay taxes like any vassal state would do. And that's the only, I always say there's been two Jewish empires in history, a mini one at the time of King David and Hollywood, but other one <laughs> doesn't exist. But there right. is, you're interesting, interesting idea. You had that idea of Milchemet Rishut, but we okay. skipped, you know, the, the optional war King can embark on, but the one to focus on is Milchemet Mitzvah. That's a commanded war, which is defined by Maimonides very clearly as one is Kibush Eretz Israel, the conquest of the land of Israel from the seven Canaanite nations, which was commanded by God. Um, and they were given a choice. It says, my money's touches. First Joshua sent in messengers and said, you know, if you want to flee, flee, we're coming. God gave us this land. You know, if you want to make peace, make peace. If you want to fight, okay, we're rolling up our sleeves and you're going to be in big trouble. And there's one tradition says one group of people, the Gergeshites fled to Africa. One group of people like actually tricked the Jews into believing they came from far away and joined. And the rest wanted to fight. But when they stopped fighting us, we stopped fighting them and left them in the land, which was a violation of the commandment. 
and had negative consequences, which would eventually lead to idolatry creeping into the Jewish people and exile mm-hmm. of the Jewish people from the land of Israel. That's one. The wow. second so one even when sh- we were told by God that we were supposed to wipe out all of these peoples, we still refused to do it as part yeah. of the Jews. And even though we eventually have a consequence for that, there's still something very interesting because I'm sure there's a lot of armies that went over, like conquered over and above what they were supposed to do and wiped everyone out with the justification that God told us to do it. Yeah, exactly. Jews are the only people in the world that to be told to go conquer people. And then we don't do it because, you know, there's that expression, you can't be more Catholic than the Pope. We, we, we can be more merciful than God. God himself says, you wow. know, I'm God. I'm my, they're my, they're my children too. You know, if I tell you to, 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 to like they, to take them out and you don't take them out, fine. You're going to try and out mercy me. You're going to pay the consequences. A very interesting discussion. There's a second Milchemet Mitzvah, which is to destroy a Malik, the arch enemy of the Jewish people, the eternal Nazi nation of the world which whenever it gets into a position of power, embarks on a genocidal war against us. And it's, it's a very famous Talmudic statement. If you're kind to the merciful, you're gonna be wicked to the, if you're, if you're, wick, if you're kind to the wicked, you're gonna be wicked to the merciful, you know, the right. merciful, look at my brain isn't working. He was merciful to the wicked, we wicked to the merciful. If you let evil right. survive, evil will come back and bite you in the face. Amalek is a nation whose very DNA is, is they're like the ultimate jihadi suicide bombers of history. If they can press the button that ends the universe, but they take the Jews with them, they will do it. And that spirit exists throughout history, which by the way, is an interesting point because I have people jump on me and say, how do you Jews, you think you're no better than the Nazis. You had a commandment to commit genocidal war against the people and they have a commandment to commit genocidal war against you. You're always the difference. I said, first of all, they're evil. So by whose perspective, you know, you have people are so warped in there. I said, there's, there's a standard of good and evil in this world. These people are, in, are evil to the core. They are anti-God and they're anti-God's representative, the Jewish people. And the other huge, di- the other difference is, of course, you know, God tells us and people jump in and go, God's always telling people to kill other people. People are always doing things in God's name. Everyone should read Jonathan's Sachs book, the late great Jonathan right. Sachs, not in God's name, because just because people claim to do things in God's name, Judaism would say God hasn't spoken to anyone a very long time. Even the Jewish people, we don't prophets today. We can't right. embark on genocidal wars against anyone be claiming that God told us. At such time as the creator of the universe choose, chooses to truly, not someone saying God spoke to me, but truly communicate his will mm-hmm. to a group of people, then we're in a different case. Right. But, and, but not only that, even an Amalekite, and Amalekite, the Amalek as a nation is not allowed to survive. If you let them live, God says, they're going to come after you and they're going to wipe you out. You're merciful to evil. You'll be, you're going to be evil to the merciful. Your own children are going to die at their hands. Like the fatal mistake King Saul makes when right. he doesn't obliterate Amalek and kill King Agag. In, in, go read in the Bible. It's an incredible story. Um, right. They're, <clears> they're viewed as like a spiritual illness. Right. And if you don't, but if you deal with them, like as if it's not an illness, you're just going to let something fester and grow and potentially wipe everybody out. So they're really built right in that way. But these days we don't know who the Amalekites are. That isn't even something that we still hold as one of the mitzvahs that we're supposed to do because we don't actually, we understand theologically and halakhically that we don't know who the Amalekites are. So we can't enact that. 100 percent this has no uh 
relevance to what's going on in the world today with the Jewish people, the Jewish state. There's no prophecy. There's no kingship. There's no Sanhedrin. None of the halachic right. parameters exist that allow us to do, just as you cannot carry out uh, death sentences in Jewish law, which stopped a long time ago. In a, in a, when the system is functioning with all its parts in place, and there's that connection, and, and there's a high court and all the other things, then the system can operate. If not, you can't do it. No one can claim today I'm wiping out a Amalek. And by the way, individual Amalekites can say, I don't buy into the Amalek thing. You know, Hitler didn't care how, how assimilated you were as a Jew. If he found you were Jewish, he killed you. Right. You know, an individual Amalekite can say, you know, I, 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 I not only am not into a Amalek because I think they're evil. And my parents taught me is wrong. I want to be Jewish. And he, and he and he or she can convert. King Saul's armor bearer, go read the story when Saul falls in battle. His armor bearer comes to tell David who's in Hebron. And David says, who are you? He's an Amalekite. Think about it. Saul had an Amalekite bodyguard. Right. That's a pretty amazing story. So there's so many nuances in there, but it's not relevant to anything reality today. Israel can't say, you know, the Jordan, you know, or Egypt or Iran is a mullock and we have, a, therefore God says nuke them, you know? We, if we were to take them yeah, out. Yeah, look, I way, mean, theologically, we could turn around and say something like that if we wanted to. Somebody I'm sure could find some justification for saying, you know, that these peoples are now what we consider Amalekites, but we don't do that. Uh, correct. Which, by the way, what you but we couldn't do it. We could not halakhically sanction it because, again, we don't have the mechanisms. But the third category that Maimonides brings in of a milchemet mitzvah is any when a threat comes against the Jewish people to destroy us, which is very relevant to today. Mm. Which, of course, brings us into another interesting topic about avoiding army service. The Torah goes into all these stories about, you know, when you're about to go to war, if a person has just gotten married and hasn't spent time with his wife or planted a vineyard and hasn't harvested, yada, 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 they are, they are patur. They don't, they're exempt from the army. But those are all cases of milchemet rishut, of an optional war. When Got the it. king wants to, but he says, milchemet mitzvah, you grab the chatan, you grab the, the groom from underneath the bridal canopy and you give him the gun, you give him the sword and you throw him into battle because there's no case. I don't want to get into this topic now. We should have a whole class on it. There's no case ever in the Bible and biblical history where we're being attacked by a life-threatening situation of Jewish people. And God says, you know, okay, don't fight. You have to fight. You have to pray and remember God runs the world, but you always have to make the effort and defend yourself. In that case, which is by the way very relevant to Israel today, because every war that the state of Israel has fought falls under the category, according to Maimonides, of, of a war for Israel's defense and the survival of the Jewish people, in which case everyone has to fight. But the other thing, Ellie, to remember is that in warfare, there's You've got to, again, read Maimonides. He codifies it beautifully. None of this is his original thinking. It's all in the oral law. But he talks about all the laws of what happens when you go to war. You know, you have to first offer, offer peace, even to the nations that we have a commandment to wipe out, like the Canaanites, you, could, you have to offer them peace. Peace means they have to submit. What does submit mean? They have to become Noahides. This is in a time when there was idolatry. He said, you, we, you can live amongst us, you people, but you got to give up your idolatrous practices and you have to accept the seven Noahide laws, which is like Judaism light, like light beer. <laughs> recognition of one God, dropping idolatry, there's a few other things in there. It's like a really, like, like a really, you know, like 
miniature version of Judaism, sticking to the real basics. Right, like it has and the you, essentials in there, right. and right, okay, got the it. essentials of what it takes to live with people because we can't allow you to live the way you are with your ridiculous pagan morality amongst us. That's going to corrupt us, like it ended up doing to us because we didn't do it correctly when we conquered the land of Israel. But there's everything in there about who you spare, who you don't spare, what you're allowed to do, even laws about not cutting down the trees. Mm -hmm. You know, the Romans when they would besiege cities would level the city, only spare the people after crucifying who knows how many people they would spare the ones who had value as slaves or to be fed to the lions and they would cut down all the trees for miles and put salt in the earth so nothing would grow like rome was here don't mess with us wow. so it's a completely different attitude because there's nothing that halacha doesn't perfade even the most mundane things like the laws of going to the bathroom and the most heavy moral issues about taking a life whether it's a death penalty or in war but it's very realistic and practical. The, the narrative that we can't we all just, human nature doesn't work that way. Wars break out all the time and you have to have proper conduct until we all get on the same page, which is the messianic era. And then there's nothing really to fight about anymore, but that's an ideal time in the future. But until such time, you have to create legislation that deals with practical realities, theft, adultery, war, death penalties. It's, right, it's the right. brilliance of Judaism that it, it aims for an ideal, but it deals with the practical realities. The insanity of so many people in this world today is ignoring practical realities, like the jump into a modern case. You know, Let's defund those police who are supposedly being trained by these Israelis to be racist. And now you see how in all of those cities, the murder rate is gone through the roof and who's suffering the most? Precisely the people right. who are claiming to be the victims of the racist police force, like black, you know, blacks in America. I just heard how many shootings there were in Chicago last weekend. It's out of control. Right. It, right. It's, but that's what comes when you don't live in reality. You got to live. And the beauty of Judaism is the ability to strive for an ideal, but live in reality and create a practical working model of how you do everything, even how you go to warfare. So you mentioned a few places where we find some of those um, ancient, that ancient scaffolding, those, uh, you know, the halakhas and judges around um, armies and wars. How much of that survives and exists today? You know, we've, we've looked at this before in terms of how is the Israeli government built based on how we would look at building a system of government in a Torah perspective. How much of that of those halachas or those, you know, foundational ideas of what's a moral, merciful army plays out today in what we would say is the IDF and, and how it works in Israel? What, what do we see that still stands that defines us as Jews with an army, which is something right. we haven't had for 2000 years? Exactly. It's a great question. I mean, the Israeli law is a, is a mishmash of a lot of things. Uh, it, but it, it, you know, it enters all kinds of marriage, birth registration, who's you know a Jew, uh, citizenship, warfare, all, in any number of legally you know, a property ownership, you name it, divorce, marriage, it's all there. Some of which, and it's a it's a mush of some halacha, Jewish law, British law, Turkish mm -hmm. law, uh, you know, right. Western legal concepts, modern Israeli law. Right. When it comes to warfare, there's not a lot of you know, halachic principles that have entered in, but it's really interesting topic is the Jewish personality, which is something I talk about a lot, mm. that there's an idea that there's a Jewish personality, that Jews being children of Abraham have certain personality traits. Again, I'm generalizing because we're all different like snowflakes, 
But there are certain traits that the Jewish people have in the Jewish state, which is just half the Jews in the world living here is going to express that personality. Like I said, just as Jews, the only people in human history that I know that have to be told to conquer and don't even listen when they're given free reign to do it by the creator of the universe, it's because the Jewish personality is not. Jews can be very aggressive in business. There's no question. Jews are actually very aggressive people in certain aspects. Um, They have a lot of energy and we're driven and we think outside the box. But when it comes to you know, physical aggression, it's not a Jewish thing, historically. It's just not in our personality to be that way. There's many rabbinic statements about, you know, you could tell a Jew, Jews are rachmanim, merciful, bishanim, modest, and gomle chasidim, we do kindness in the world. It's like, non-Jews can be kind and modest too, but Jews are disproportionately this way. We see this in so many areas, that so many causes in the world. Jews are 0.2% of the world's population, but like almost any cause to make the world a better place is either founded or run by Jews. You know, the Jews give so much charity, much more statistically, you know, know, in terms of mega gifts in America, it's a huge percentage of it comes from Jews who are less than 2% of the population. But that Jewish personality definitely... Even if it was the state of Israel was founded by completely secular Israelis like David Ben-Gurion, who actually knew his Bible well, but was not at all halachically driven by Jewish law. He was not looking in the Bible for what the Torah said, but it was certainly a source of inspiration for him in terms of his Zionist connection to the land. But that Jewish personality clearly uh, spills into how Israel behaves in warfare with an incredible amount of restraint and mercy, despite what the media and the false narrative, you know, you, the stuff that you brought up at the beginning brings out. It's just not the reality of who we Jews are and how we act. Jews just don't do the things. Raping we, and pillaging and, right. and, and stuff. It's just not a Jewish thing to do. We don't even really have that like stereotypical um you know, I, you know, representation, like when you think about Jews in the stereotypical sense, there was a great article in tablet a while ago, I think it was by Dara Horan that was saying like, we're not the cool kids. We're not the jocks, you know, John uh, Stewart made a joke, like we are not a Duncan people, you know, like, we're not often thought of when you think of Jews, you think of glasses, you think of you know, Woody Allen, you think of, you know, this kind of a little more nerdy, a little bit more brainy, a little bit more kind of, and I think that there's something to what you're saying in terms of without stereotyping it, that we will tend to think before we act. Yeah. Um, even though we can be, you know, uh, driven, um, that we're not really often seen as the guy that stands on the street corner, like beating kids up for their lunch money. Even yeah, though I mean, that's is, how we're being portrayed, weirdly enough, in the in the media right now. Yeah, there's so much truth to that. There's you know that joke of always the sign of maturity in a Jewish boy when he recognizes he's got a far greater chance of owning a sports team than ever actually playing on one. <laughs> right. You know, we're not okay. Jews are not. I mean, different groups of people are more. You know, when you fly to Wisconsin or something, where all the settlers are from like Scandinavia, even the women are over six feet tall. We're not big, like the Vikings were big, huge, aggressive people. You know, when when they brought Christianity to Germany, the bishop who brought it there left out, not that the average, you know, pagan German could read, but they left out all the stories about, you know, Joshua and all the, of all the conquests, because they figured these people are so violent to begin with. If we give them more 
stories, albeit you know that the you know the context is very different, it's just going to make it more violent. Yeah. So it's it, it's you know the Bible was given as a, a guidebook for the Jewish people. The non-Jews got a hold of it and often misread it, and misunderstand it. But we, the, it's a book made for that Jewish personality. Jews are not going to read the Bible and go, "Yeah, we can go kill people." You don't right. have Jews who say that, by the way. There are some, unfortunately, right. who run around thinking, "I have a prerogative." God says, "You know, this is this is our land, and we can do whatever we want to the non." You can't apply biblical halachic law to the situation in Israel today. And they are largely ostracized as extremists. Yeah, and it's a and minor, on the French, right? It's, it's not a an accepted way of thinking so there's definitely exceptions there's definitely people who do that but it's just not in the jewish personality mm. to to be to behave in this way and you don't see you see like an organized crime there's a lot of jews in organized crime in the early part of the 20th century coming out of the lower east side um but none of them none of their children or their children's children stayed in the family business it's just it's not a thing they became accountants doctors and lawyers so it's just not what, it, but it doesn't mean that Jews can't be good fighters. The Israeli armies, I had a tough time taking the Israeli army seriously when I came here too, thinking Jews can't fight. I want the Marines, you know. <laughs> I did, I was in the army and I was in Givati and we used to, and we used to train. They called the Israeli Marines. I don't know why we didn't, we never did any water stuff, but we used to train with U.S. Marines who, no, no I was jokingly said, and no disrespect, I love the Marines, but I always say they were twice as big and half as smart. These were these big guys who were like training with them. All of us were like, like, teeny compared to them it's just not a thing and they were like much more you know they're in a lot of ways they were better soldiers and they're really good at the orders and following mm -hmm. orders and respect right. and like things that jews are not great at doing right. but it's it's and, and and historically by the way jews have been you know you know very very strong defenders of their homeland if you read what josephus's description of how the jews fought when the jerusalem is surrounded after he finished fighting a civil war the insanity of infighting but when we finally unite to fight the romans you know the, the, they give the romans hell bar kochba gave the romans hell jews can be very like japanese in the pacific like kamikaze crazy fighters because very idealistic and very passionate and very right. motivated people can fight especially in a system in a system in a situation of great desperation but again you don't find situations of jews just going to war to conquer when king david even him with his mini empire when he subdues all the threats from all the people who have been bothering us read the book of judges it's all about different nations around us attacking us there's never a situation where we say, let's go fight someone. Let's go pick a fight. Let's go make a war. He subdues the nations. And then King Solomon comes. We have peace and prosperity. And that's the zenith of Jewish history. And the ideal was that everyone in the world, we, we have an ideal society. And they all come. It says they came from all over the world to learn from the wisdom of Solomon. Our idea, unlike Julius Caesar's most famous military dispatch from Gaul, like 2060 years ago, when he witty wiki, I came, I saw, I conquered. And that's how they spread ideas around the world by conquering people and stuffing their taxes, their, their roads, their architecture, their laws, their system of government down other people's throats. Our idea was when you create something that works, people will come and follow and they want to learn from you. And you can see that King Solomon, which is the closest we ever got right. to the Messianic era in ancient Jewish history, was precisely that's what's going on. When we do the right thing, people will come to learn from us. They'll follow our lead and the whole world will live together in peace. There's no glorification of war, of empires, of conquest. You don't find this in the Bible. I remember there used to be a guy who was a big speaker years ago, Walid Shubat. He was a former like 
terrorist in Gaza. Uh, he's probably well into his 70s now. And he, he ended up leaving that behind and, and, and uh, talking about in the 70s. And he married a Christian woman. He became a Christian, but he used to give, he made a lot of money at one point going around to Jewish groups talking about his story, which was fascinating. And I still remember him. The one part of his story I really remembered was he talked about how, you know, the different attitude of Islamic and Arab attitude towards war and the songs they used to sing as children. And he starts singing this song in Arabic, which translates to, we, we knock against the gates of heaven with the skulls of the Jews. That's the song. Like the little kids were singing in like kindergarten. Now, I'm sure in Hama, in the Hamas kids in Gaza are singing similar songs today about blowing themselves up and becoming martyrs. Right. And then he goes and he says, and he goes, I tried to find, I tried to find war. And then I looked at all the Hebrew songs and I tried to find the word war in an Israeli song, in a Hebrew song. And then I finally found it. And he starts singing, Lo It's the quote from Isaiah, which is the motto of the UN. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And that's like the only song he could find. Wow. So there's no, you know, it's so not, you look at like the Vikings and you, know, you go to Valhalla and then you could sit there and like fight eternally forever and get drunk and kill people in heaven, you know. Yeah. It's so not in the Jewish personality because that's not who we are. That's not, our spiritual genetics aren't laid out for that. That never was the Jewish people in the ancient world. It never was how we behaved. We're actually, God faults us for not being aggressive and not listening enough and not finishing jobs we're supposed to finish to wipe out evil. Okay. And, and the descendants of those same people in the Bible who occupy the state of Israel today have the same personality. And only someone who knows nothing about reality can accuse the IDF of all these ridiculous war crimes so let's speak about that just for a few minutes. Like, what are some of the things that are in place or how does the IDF function? Because look, war, we understand war is a, is a, it's a passionate pursuit, right? Like, you know, it's something where you can easily get caught up in the moment and, and not have healthy boundaries and not care for other people. So what are some of the things that the IDF puts in place to, or is, are there things that the IDF puts in place to know, look, we're in a, we're living in a place where people are often attacking us, meaning those passions will flare. And there is the potential for people to cross an inappropriate boundary. Um, Do we have things in place that acknowledge that? And, And how does the IDF function in those types of situations? Yeah. So there's a whole concept of purity of arms. There's very clear, rules of engagement that you're allowed to i have i am i am a a gun owner in israel by the way i have you know in israel owning a gun is a privilege not a right you get one gun i get i get 50 bullets every three years that means every three years i get 50 bullets it's not like i have three thousand three million rounds of ammunition and 15 guns and then you're supposed to carry your gun here i just had to do a fresher course because you have to renew your license and and i had to randomly do one now and i just spent like i had to sit there in a classroom for a half hour with the instructor explaining all the situations that I'm not allowed to shoot in, which is basically every situation, unless the person's like physically threatening me or someone else, like with a knife or a gun and, and you're like coming at me, you can't shoot. And the army is very similar, by the way. A lot of soldiers, my kids complained about this. All my four of my five kids were in, were in the army, all, in, all except for one were in combat units, one was in the Navy. And I had a son who was a sniper, and he said, the situations in which you're allowed to fire are almost non-existent. 
um, and it, it's basically, and it's, the soldiers are really frustrated by it because clearly this person hates me and wants to kill me because he's not involved in the direct action of like shooting at me. I can't shoot back at him. You know, like he has a mall. If a guy has, or my son, a sniper was on an ambush up north and a security patrol on a road. And there was a, a, there was people throwing Molotov cocktails at cars, which is a lethal weapon. You know, that's, it comes from you know, the, the Russians. You, that's where they come. They used it in World War II. You know, you take out, you know, a lot of people with those things. And, uh, and they, 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 they were, and they actually had, he had the, the guy, he's a, he's way far away with a sniper rifle and the guy's up above the road with his bottles, with the gasoline, with the lighter, everything there. But the rules of engagement were only if he lights the bottle and is about to throw it, can you actually take the shot. And he said, and he's the guy, this is the guy I've been doing it for night after night, throwing bottles at the road. Clearly his intention is lethal. He wants to kill people, but they couldn't. And the guy's lighter, he's trying to do it, but his lighter couldn't work. It wasn't working. And in the end, he just stands up and walks away and leaves. And they didn't, it was too far away from him to run after him. So that's the kind of stuff that I don't think too many armies in the world would be sitting there going, no, 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 you can't shoot unless he lights the model, which is also dangerous because maybe he's going to throw it before you get a chance to take the right. shot or you miss and he goes and hits a car with it. But the, the rules of engagement are extremely, extremely rigid in situations you have to fire. And then you look and anyone who objectively looks how Israel fighting these asymmetrical battles with, you know, in Gaza, where, you know, the Hamas people who are really guilty of war crimes, if using their civilians as 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 human shields, right. the, the main Gaza command center for Hamas is underneath the main hospital in Gaza. Everyone knows where it is, but Israel's not going to take it out because it's underneath the hospital. But that they first, you know, call the, the building and let, you know, and they, you can hear the recordings of the guy speaking in Arabic from the IDF saying, we're going to blow up your building. Would you please tell everyone to get out? Like, we're giving you a half hour. Like, meanwhile, everyone leaves and they blow up an empty building. And then they drop a bomb on the roof, which is a knock-knock bomb, which doesn't do any damage, makes a loud explosion. And then they, with very precision, extremely expensive missiles that cost tens of thousands of dollars, then they take the building out. And the world still goes nuts, you know. Right. So you don't, no army in the world does anything like that. A normal situation is they lob missiles at you. We tell our artillery to open up. Right. And this level whole sections of Gaza city where the, where the firing came from. Israel is the world master at blowing up empty buildings and right. empty Hamas guard posts. The Arabs know and Hamas, they know missile goes off. Everyone immediately leaves their post because they know Israel in a half hour is going to blow up an empty building. That, that's the way it behaves. So anyone objectively looking at it knows. I say if if, if Israel were Russia and Putin right. were running the country, Gaza would be a parking lot. There would be no Gaza. Right. Look what Putin looked like. If it was America for that point. You know, America wouldn't any, tolerate it either. Right. I can't and there's always, there's always collateral damage. And country with an army that would tolerate yeah. that kind of nonsense. There's, there's always collateral damage in warfare. You can't, and especially when your enemy's deliberately hiding behind a civilian targets. And, and, and innocent people get killed. That's what happens. It's a sad, it's a sad byproduct. But Israel does its absolute best. Look what Richard Kent, former NATO commander in Bosnia. He's a colonel in the British Army, retired. He's got all, he, uh, he, said, he says over and over again, he says, no army in human history has ever behaved with the level of restraint that the Israeli army has behaved in. No po po police force. You don't see, people you don't, you don't see levels of violence coming out of the Israeli police and the army the way you see coming out of other countries in the world and the notion and, that Israel is training, you know, police to be brutal and racist and, you know, torture. Right. 
what are the checks and balances if somebody does cross a line as somebody in the army? If somebody in the IDF does use their weapon inappropriately, is more violent than, than they should be, what are the checks and balances for that that are in the system? Yeah, so they have, Israel investigates all of its, you know, the UN and they're always trying to call for tribunals, which are guaranteed never to be objective because always run by people with clear biases against Israel, Israel's war crimes. Um, but in any instance where inappropriate action was taken, the soldier or soldiers or officer will be brought up in charges, punished, which could mean things like jail sentences and stuff like that. Soldiers have gone to jail. Officers have been relieved of duty, been demoted, all kinds of things. There's definite consequences for it. It's drummed into. But again, it's like telling a bunch of people who don't want to, you know, who don't want to be violent and kill people, don't be really violent and kill people. Right. It, it's almost it's almost unnecessary because it's so not in the Jewish personality to just do. That's why you, you don't, if anyone who lives here realizes you don't get. Uh, these, these acts, and unfortunately, the Arab community have a lot of it. You have a lot of violence and shootings and stuff. You don't get a lot of just lawless, violent crime thing. It just doesn't happen here. It's so weird. People think Israel's so dangerous, and I tell people, no, 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 no. There, there are parts of most major American cities that are far scarier than any place in Israel. I mean, as an, as an openly identifiable Jew, there's places I would not want to go into in villages and towns as a Jew because it would be dangerous, but it's not because these people are lawless and violent. It's because they're ideologically, they hate me as a Jew and they're going to kill me or whatever. But you don't see this stuff that I'm seeing on the, I was watching Fox News of this guy, she gets to a bicycle black guy and just like beats the crap out of a 67 year old guy beats him unconscious to steal is like throws him around like a rag doll and then reaches by stuff like that doesn't happen in israel right it's not there's organized crime in israel too but it's all about money you know and they sometimes take each other out that happens it's not a perfect society mm. but that level of violence and crime, because again it's just just like you see in war just like you it's just not in the jewish personality Jews, Jewish criminals are more about more about making money. It's not about power and beating the, the crap out of people. And you don't have gang warfare in Israel. It's just not stuff that goes around. It's not tribal like that. Hmm. So I find it so sadly ironic that what Israel is being accused of in the Israeli police force is, is completely the, it's an inversion of reality, completely yeah. an inversion of reality. Which goes to what we've talked about in other episodes, this idea of historical revisionism and how, you know, basically... You can kind of say anything right now and be taken seriously, even if you have no facts to back yourself up, as long as you're connected with the right media outlets or the right voices, you know, you can say something and it will get repeated 150 times, you know, and by the 150th time you've heard it, you think it's true, even though it's yep. not. So I think it's really challenging. So, um, okay, I think we're going to um, wrap things up a little bit here. Um, so what I wanted to just say is if there's anybody listening who is in the United States and you can look into whether this idea of deadly exchange is coming to your city, um, please find out if there are Jewish organizations um, or even ally organizations in your city that are trying to fight it. Because largely what I've heard from people on the front lines right now that are trying to combat deadly exchange um, is that they feel quite alone and that the larger Jewish organizations aren't necessarily aware of the implications of what this is and, and have largely not been um, on the ground helping out. So if you know Jewish organizations, please put deadly exchange on their radar um, because these um, 
resolutions are coming to a city near you. So um, thank you, Ken, so much for um, helping us understand a little bit more about um, the history of Jews related to having an army and being in situations of war, which we are unfortunately quite a lot, um, and how this idea that Israel, Israelis are um, propagating violent racism in the United States is just ridiculous based on, on what you've said related to the Jewish personality and related to our history of how we treat warlike situations. So thank you. Pleasure. See you next week. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, I do actually have to go a little bit early because one of my kids has been calling me nonstop. <laughs> so I'm going to hop off. Um, but we will do an extra bit of time for questions and answers um, next uh, episode, so next week. Um, if you have more questions, please feel free to reach out to Ken at his website. Um, which is kenspiro.com, um, or you can reach out to me and I'm happy to put you in touch with him. If you have people that you can share the podcast with, or you'd like to uh, invite them to our recordings, please go ahead and do so. People only find out about this podcast from you guys, the listeners. So we would love it if you would let people know if you think there's something in here that they would um, benefit from or appreciate, it would be really great to have the word out there. Ken, thank you so, so much. Um, have an awesome dig next week <laughs> and we can't wait to hear what you find. Okay, great. Have a good week. Take care. Take care everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us on Remember What's Next. If you would like to get more resources and information about Rabbi Ken Spiro, please check out his website at www.kenspiro.com. If you have a question or an idea for a topic, please email us at rememberwhatsnext at gmail.com. 